City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, Meg, um, just turning the buttons on, Meg Kimber over there. Meg, how are you? Morning, good, how are you? I'm okay, Kevin Healy over here. This is it today. Um, Eugenia is back in a couple of weeks, but she's easing out because work's caught up with her, I think. But she, she'll be back in a couple of weeks to do a show with you. Yep, and do uh, something about uh, student loans and robo-debts. Rightio, and today, of course, is uh, second Wednesday when we do sort of energy-related type issues, and um, we... Uh, and um, one of the forms of energy, of course, being talked about because it's the only absolutely non-polluting form of energy <laughs> is nuclear energy, as we know, and governments yep. set up an inquiry to prove that point. And <clears throat> we're going to be talking in the second half. We only talked to him two or three weeks ago, but he's on rather quickly again because of this, this inquiry. But Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, their anti-nuclear campaigner, having him on in the second half of the show to chat about his view on that, whether it is the, the best form of uh, of non-polluting. Uh, it's interesting to say that uranium and, and, and nuclear is non-polluting, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I know what Dave's position on that's going to be. Um, but he, he, we did run out of time last time, so it would be good to have him back um, already because there's so much that we could cover. And I think last time he was on his way out to somewhere, he was on, in a taxi on the way to the airport or something, wasn't he? Uh, yes, yeah. in fact, he was about to go to some, co- yeah. some conference in Sydney or something so where he was probably, speaking. Yeah. That's right. We get a bit of an update about that as well. Yep. I'm going to pour a cup of tea now. That sounds um, great. That's very good. Now, there was a story on the front page of this morning's age about uh, congestion and costs and things of traffic. Have you yep. had a look at that? Uh, yes, I have. Tell me about it. Well, you know what? Um, do you remember before the election there was a bit of a thing that went around about um, congestion and cities <coughs> and how we needed to... Um, you know, fix up all of these dreadful problems that we have. But underlying it is kind of the idea that we have to fix it by building more highways. And there was, it was, it was quite a push, I think, Scott Morrison's sort of, it was a little bit part of his um, sort of ideology about roads and transport and infrastructure and stuff like that. Yep. Do you remember that? I do is that indeed. Just me? I do indeed. But on things like uh, industrial relations and climate, the government says everything it does yep. is non must be non ideological. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's clearly not <laughs> ideological. No, no. Anyway, there's there's estimates from this you know agency that um, tw- by twenty thirty one all the roads, no matter what we do, <laughs> it seems like no matter what we do, all the roads are going to be congested. But I couldn't, uh, you know, as far as I could tell so far, I didn't see public transport as a being floated as a viable option to that? No, and in fact, um, just yesterday, um, Graham Curry, who's in the transport at Monash, he uh, made the point that we've just got to stop building. No, mm. it was on the World Today yesterday. Yeah. ABC, I heard it. Did you hear that? No. But he was, uh, he was saying that uh, we have to just stop building freeways and we have yep. to build yep. better public. I mean, what everyone's been saying for so bloody long. But uh, it does at least bring me, it's the one thing that gets me 
Meg to quote the Bible to oh, you. Oh, yes. lovely. Yes. A little bit of Sunday school here on a Wednesday. The, the point you raised about no matter how many you build, etc. Yeah. My quoting of the Bible is freeways beget freeways beget freeways beget freeways beget freeways beget freeways. Interesting. Recurring. Right, 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 right. right. Um, I yes. see. Um, what was I going to say about first? Oh, yeah, there's a really good visual. It really helps when there's like a, an image that can capture these kind of things. And I saw it on Facebook, sorry to say. Um, there's, a, there's a group of people all lined up, maybe like 50 people and one bus on a rope. And there's 50 people and 50 cars. And you really see just like how, how, how you know, these kind of things happen, like congestion mm. and... Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's actually going to be a, uh, I should, should have noted what time it is, but next Saturday, there was one last week in Darabin or somewhere, but um, next Saturday, uh, there's going to be a, a slow bike ride on Sydney Road starting at Moreland yes. Station. Do you know what time it starts? No, I don't know. It's, I haven't um, heard that, but I've been on them in Hobart and yeah, other places. Um, Saturday morning, so people can find that out, but it's on Moreland and... Uh, Go down Sydney Road to uh, to highlight the the climate change situation. Oh, uh, excellent! Yeah, that is so much fun. I really encourage people to do that. Um, by the way, just I was given a stuff when I came into the studio yesterday. Fiona Patton, um, you know, upper house member here, uh, moved a motion um, that. Um, that the Parliament debate the serious allegations of corruption and other illegal activity at Crown Casino, mm. but the President of the Council rejected the application. Um, and um, she goes on to say quite strongly that um, you know the public has a right to know what is happening at Crown and nothing short of a thorough investigation following a full debate by the Victorian Parliament should be satisfactory to all, etc., etc. Um, so... Um, well, good luck to her. Let's hope she can keep pushing it and uh, find out what happened. As I said last mm. week, when uh, the Kerner government way back decided to look at whether we could have, should have a casino here in Melbourne, the inquiry by a senior Silk, later Supreme Court judge, we might have been a retired judge by that time, Xavier Connor, uh, he recommended not to go ahead with the casino because they attract... They attract criminal elements, but um, mm. obviously they've overcome that problem. Yes, they have. Yeah. And yeah. if the, yeah, <laughs> say anything about governance, I'm just going to restrain myself. Yes, probably. Where, where the criminals are and everything. <laughs> Maybe for the better. Yeah. <laughs> Still, they're in a handy spot near the Yarra. That's so the, the punters who lose could run out and throw themselves straight into the river and oh, drown no. themselves, which a few have done. Oh, no. Um, do that. So that's handy. Put it right next to a river so I can go and jump in. Yeah. Um, the sixty-fifth. Uh, this is for wine buffs. Are you a wine buff? Uh, not at all. No, well, in no oh, way well, whatsoever. Gonna, you'll save a little bit of money this weekend then, because I'm yeah. sure everyone's <laughs> rushing out. Uh, the sixty-fifth um, successive vintage of Pen of the Grange Hermitage. Oh yeah. Probably, I think I've it, heard is, of it that. is definitely our most famous red. Yeah. Uh, it's just been released this week, and if you head down to your wine shop, you can snap it up at nine hundred dollars a bottle. The latest oh. one. That's so, good. So if you, you I know, didn't need to pay rent this month anyway. No, but you've just saved 900 Not being a mm. wine buff, you probably yeah, won't bother buying right. one. <laughs> no. no, I'm not going to. No. Oh you, you certainly wouldn't want to drop it on the way out, would you? Oh, my gosh. It would be the most expensive thing I owned if I had a bottle of that. <laughs> right. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to come and drink it with you. Um, <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Without giving it the 450 Yeah. <laughs> um, the... Uh, the federal government has announced this new uh, migration stream, 5,000 visas. They'll, they'll be included in our overall cap. It won't be additional to, but it's for the, 
quoted as the world's best and brightest every year with the aim of entrenching high-tech industries in Australia. And so we're going to fast-track 5,000 people who will also fast-track their their nationalisation here. so they can, and they're, they're recruiting already the departments overseas, recruiting in Boston, Singapore, Shanghai, Dubai, and other places, and looking for people from global institutions such as MIT, Stanford, and Oxford. Mm. Um, it just leaves you to think, doesn't it? Like 5,000, because they say it will help the Australian economy, et cetera, et cetera. The, globe, the goal of the Global Talent Program, which is the euphemistic title, mm. is to help develop Australian companies and high growth industries, Mr. Coleman said, as the minister sort of under. under under Peter Dutton, um, and um, and it makes you wonder, you know, 5,000 there, but even one or two refugees is too much and we shouldn't yeah. bring them here. Yeah. They apparently don't make a contribution to our economy when they get here. No, yeah. and it's all a bit of a <clears throat> false logic in a way. I mean, because lots of people do. I remember just reading recently about um, a person who was seeking asylum and he was about seven and he was on... I think the Tampa, if I've remembered correctly, that John How- during Howard's years he mm. refused to, um, and they were on the he refused to take them in, and they were on that um, Norwegian kind of freighter ship. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, Tampa. And, yeah. yeah, and so he was taken into New Zealand, and he's recently become, I think, um, uh, either a Rhodes Scholar or the one where people go to America. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of that, but really high achieving. But, I mean, he, he you know, he, it's complicated because then he's like, well, I'm not only a legitimate person because I'm a high achieving person. Like, I'm a legitimate person no matter what. That's, That's why right. we have human rights. Because I yeah. am a person. Exactly. <laughs> so, yes. um, but yeah, it's false, false to say that people seeking asylum don't have things to contribute to our communities. Last year during the election campaign, Labor came up with a proposal um, which would cost $1.8 billion a year, um, allowing all businesses to be able to deduct 20% of any, any new asset they bought worth more than 20000 A few things like their buildings, etc., were not included. But uh, mm. it was attacked by the government as being an attack on big business. I don't know why they said that, but they said it with everything okay. they did at that stage was an attack <laughs> on big business. But now... Um, Jennifer Westacott from the um, Business Council of Australia, yesterday in a speech in Perth, she actually advocated this this idea because <laughs> she says, well, because the government didn't go ahead with company taxes, they've gone ahead with cutting taxes for the rich personally, but company right. taxes have stayed at 30%. Uh, because of that, then we really need this. Um, and she says that... Um, Parliament should eventually come to, come to terms with the drag effect of a 30% company tax rate on larger corporations. The need to increase productivity requires a lift in business investment now. So she says this will be an interim measure. Um, investment allowance, business will be able to unleash a new investment needed to build a more productive and innovative economy. Don't they always say that? That will help drive stronger wages growth. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And deliver the new jobs Australia needs. So in order to overcome... So she says this will upset the fact they didn't get the tax break. So it's going to, you know... So, of course, when they do get the tax break, mm. um, 
Well, let's go on one more thing. Given the Senate's resistance, we'll leave the fight for another day. That's on, t- on, on tax cuts. An investment allowance is no substitute for a company tax cut. But if that tax cut is off the agenda for now, it doesn't mean we can, we can just stop thinking about how to boost investment. So let's take that first step to getting business investment back on track and introduce an investment allowance. Now, of mm. course, when they do come round to cutting taxes for them as well, they won't want the investment thing taken away. Mm-mm. So then they'll want both. Uh, but it's just interesting, isn't it, that uh, they keep looking for ways. And they, uh, same as with the Hain Royal Commission, like every, almost every recommendation that's been, that government says we're adopting has since been watered down because the banks and financial institutions mm. are screaming about the effect and it's, mm. it's affecting consumers. That's the awful thing, of course, and red tape, etc. cetera. Uh, and now um, Simon, the bloke from uh, Aussie Loans, or whatever he's called, Aussie Home Loans, and Shane Elliott from the ANZ Bank, uh, their big, big man, mm. um, they both said at a conference this week that the responsible lending rules that have come in since then are an impediment to housing development, um, et cetera, oh, because no. there's a, banks aren't sure of the... Uh, you know, banks just... Uh, they need certainty, and banks and lending institutions are no longer certain what they can do, and so it's cutting back lending and therefore new homes and homes generally, et cetera. So, in fact, the new rules... So they need to lift those. So, And every mm. every time they scream, they keep making the rules back to where they were before right. the Hay and Royal Commission. So yeah. it's gonna go, that's where it's going to end up. Wow. Yeah. What a shame. I mean, the commission was no one, no one in the banking sector wanted that, obviously. And it's it goes to that whole idea of like, oh, well, don't worry, we're regulating ourselves, which mm. is why the federal government is kind of like, you know, was only went to the integrity commission path because they were really pushed to by the crossbench, but generally they don't want to, they don't want to actually have outside scrutiny. So you know, this whole idea of institutions regulating themselves is pretty faulty, I think. Oh, they don't say they don't want outside. They just don't want interference. So. <laughs> it's the <same> thing. That's <laughs> uh, about that. That's pretty much but they, uh, But self-regulation is always the way, except for unions. They must be controlled. Oh, but, yes, but, um, <laughs> because they're very dangerous. But, but, well, oh, All kinds of things can dangerous. happen. Evil. Yeah. Evil is yeah. the word, evil. Yeah. Um, speaking of um, evil, uh, you'll be pleased to know that uh, well, what, how do you get? How can you get in? How do you get involved in something but not get involved in it? I too? feel like this is a rhetorical question. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah. But go on. How do you get involved and not be involved? Yeah. Is it mm, like Bill Clinton when he didn't inhale? Uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. And he did not have sex with that woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's my guess. What, what, yeah. What's well, the it's, answer? It's, it's going to war when you're not going to war. Ah. Um, Scott Morrison has indicated further that Australia will be joining military patrols in the Straits of Hormuz, mm. but would not be buying into the dispute between the United States and Iran that has triggered the crisis. So you send our warships to the Straits of Iran to support America, but okay. you're not supporting America. Yep, okay. That sounds perfectly sensible. That's how you do it? Yep. That's that's the answer. Good to know. Yep. Unfortunately, the only other person who's um, this stage says he's going to do it is Boris Johnson. Morrison Morrison spoke to Johnson on the phone, um, Mm. AS, and they're both looking very carefully at their participation. Um, So it's like the old 
coalition of the killing days, really, mm. with George W. Bash, the workers, and uh, mm. and uh, and Tony Blyer, and uh, mm. and little bald-headed bloke here, um, mm. who the coalition of the killing. So it's back. It's it's, it's the U.S. It's a most gracious Majesty's country, and it's the U. It's us once again. But we are not involved. Okay, Boris want, Trump and Scott Morrison. Yeah, I want you to. I want you to realise. What a trio! When you think about it, yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, but I don't want you to think for one second we're getting involved. No, I wouldn't think that. I mean, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, that doesn't. I'm. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Right, <laughs> I don't know what I can say about that. <laughs> radio. Um, moving on. Um, this is one we might do more about as a as an item and talk to people. Yeah. But there is um, massive complaints going on for years and years at Hampton Park. There's a landfill out there, yeah, uh, which is out in the the um, mm. southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Oh, okay, yeah. It's in that area where they put a lot of that stuff. But there's a lot of those suburbs and the western suburbs cop all the the noxious stuff for Melbourne. Um, southeast, <clears throat> like yeah, it's down sort of beyond Dandenong Way. That part oh, of the world, okay, Hampton right. Around the, roughly that part of the world. The Environment Protection Authority has received at least 150 complaints in the past month alone about the smell from the sewer zone tip in, that's S-U-E-Z, by the way, not sewer. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> sewer zone tip in Melbourne South East. Sewers is the French Suez. company. They were heavily involved here in the in the um, desalination plant as well. They, they uh, get around with trucks that tell you they care about the environment. Yep, okay. As we're about to hear. Um and in May, EPA Southern Metro Region Manager Marlene Mathias said the authority had discovered issues at the Hallam Road site in contravention of the EPA licence. In June, the stench had become so bad the authority issued a pollution alert. A local bloke said he had called the EPA hundreds of times since 2011. Mm. He moved away from his house because of the horrible stench, but the smell had become so bad it now spread to his new neighbourhood. He's making daily complaints. The smell is so bad it permeates through our bedrooms. We can't even open the windows. Family is suffering. We have breathing issues and migraines. The smell is toxic. Um, Winsome Anderson, who owns a farm next to the landfill, said the odour was dreadful. I get very lethargic and experience headaches when I'm up here. We also have litter scattered all over the place. Something needs to be done about that, etc. So it goes on in that vein and people getting quite ill. What do they they have there? Sorry, is this rubbish? Just a tip face? Yeah, it's landfill. Now, what's going in it, whether it's just normal rubbish landfill, I'm not sure. EPA investigations have found landfill gas to be the source of the stench. Executive Director Tim Eaton said sewers had, had proposed three new leachade ponds to replace existing ponds, which could help reduce the odour. Mm. The Hallam Road landfill has a history of problems with odour, and this is not a complete solution, but adequate leachate management does enable landfill operators to better deal with landfill gas issues. He said the leachate ponds were proposed for the southern side of the landfill as far as possible from homes, but of course, in that area, there's new developments all the time, so mm. any land that's put aside is always going to be eaten up by homes eventually as some mm. developer comes along. Sewers had been contacted for comment, according to this story, but, of course, they didn't comment. Mm. Um, yeah, so um, it's uh, mm. it's a pretty serious one, and it's not dissimilar to what's you know, been talked about Western for years. Yeah. Yeah. So there you are. Now, a couple of other, I'll just skip over a few things here, but one I did want to talk about, because on the we talked uh, a week or two ago about that dreadful new integrity bill about unions coming in where mm. anyone, virtually anyone can complain mm. and have a union deregistered or have a, a, a union official sacked 
and even they can they can prevent um, union amalgamations, even if the members mm. of both unions agree. There are all sorts of things in the bill. It's a dreadful bill, but it's not. Mm. The government points out it's not ideological, by the way. I don't want no, you, don't want you to think that for one second. And it's important for unions yeah. to have integrity. Oh, absolutely. But not necessarily yeah. the federal government has an integrity. Oh, no, commission. the federal government does it because it, it is all integrity. And it is. It, it demands integrity yeah. in society. Yep. Well, surprise, surprise, I just back in the age on Thursday, August the 1, a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, a story a coalition dominated parliamentary committee is backing ACTU concerns that union busting legislation promoted by the Morrison government will put workers' rights at risk. The Human Rights Committee says Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter's amendments to the Ensuring Integrity Bill failed to allay, quote, concerns about impacts on freedom of organisation and unionist rights to elect officials. Liberal MP Ian Goodenough chairs the committee and sits alongside fellow Liberal MPs Celia Hammond, Liberal Senators Claire Chandler and David Van, and Nationals MP Ann Webster giving the Coalition a majority. The other members are Labor, Graham Perrett, um, Senators Pat Dodson, Nikita Green, Anita Green and Green Senator Nick McKim. Hmm. While there have been a number of changes, including relating to matters the committee previously commented on, these do not fully address the committee's initial concerns, the report said of the amended bill, which has been debated in the House this week. Um, in an earlier report, the committee said the bill, which will be, etc., was likely to be incom- incompatible with the right to freedom of association. And then it goes on about the concerns of the ACTU. Now, that was August 1. August 6, Tuesday, August 6. Um, yeah. This is five days later. Um, yes. Thank the, you for, for the, the maths. For the mathematical, yes. mathematical illiterate. Yep. I worked it out. Six minus one. Yep. Six, one, <laughs> Do five. a bit of long that's form. That's it, five. Yep. Yes, that's well it. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, Sharon Burrow, the um, ex-ACTU president, who's now um, General Secretary of International Trade Union Confederation, um, says the government's legislation has sent shockwaves around the world. Um, She said um, a democratic country like Australia could actually pass such a... Well, you know, she was shocked that it could. Mm. Sent the wrong message to developing nations. Somebody ought to be calling out the absolute overstepping of the mark by this elected government. It's unions today. Who's next? It is the sort of legislation that we expect from authoritarian countries, etc., etc., dictatorships, and on, on she went. But then... Further down in the story, what an interesting bit, all those Liberals who were so strong supporting workers' rights. Government MPs who make up a majority on a parliamentary human rights committee that scrutinises legislation voted for the bill, despite saying two days earlier that it put workers' rights at risk. The Human Rights Committee backed the ACTU in raising concerns about the bill's interaction with Australia's obligations, but the... MPs still voted with the government, so there you are. What does it does it mean? All the MPs in the human rights? No, group? no, the, um, the, the as a majority, the liberal ones, the, the oh, liberal national, the MPs that yeah, were the, in there, those ones who were saying it was against all the human rights things, uh, still supported breaking human rights. Apparently, how disappointing! Because yeah. I mean, you know, there's no reason. I mean, I feel like politics. Correct me if I'm wrong. You've been, I'm assuming you've been looking at politics for a long time. Well, I don't know. Like maybe, maybe not. Maybe you know. <laughs> oh no, only about um, a hundred years. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Getting close. So I just feel like this kind of you know it makes me feel optimistic. The first story when they're like, okay, there's people from different parties, but they can agree 
that just if you kind of look at the facts of an of an issue, then you can say, like, if we put this up against a Bill of Rights or, you know, a, a human rights charter or something like that, then then it does contravene it. So that's kind of, sure, it's open to debate, but it's also a little bit like you can just work it out and there is kind of an answer, mm. it seems to me. So then people vote along party lines. It's become so partisan and uh, at the same time people people don't want to actually vote for one party or another because none of them really represent mm. people anymore That's like, right. so uh, has it changed like have you seen a time in the past when people were like you know what that is a good idea i'm going to support that because it's a good idea to some degree but it's become more conservative because the the center the, the centre of politics they call the sensible, you know, Abbott keeps calling it the sensible centre, that sort of thing. Yeah. That centre has gone further to the right over the years. Yeah. So, so what yep. was left years mm-hmm. ago now is, you know, you can it's raise radical. things down. Oh, you, they think you just arrived from the moon. Yeah, um, or you're a the, socialist. Yeah, yeah. terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope you are. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, but certainly, um, you know, what is now regarded as centre, um, like the ALP now is extremely right-wing. Yeah. It was far more left-wing when I was young. Yeah, um, yeah. Particularly, yep. well, there was a period here in Victoria after the Labor split when the the right wing, the DLP and right wing unions split off. In mm. that period, it was quite left wing in Victoria because only the left wing unions and left wing people were left behind. And yeah, later right. On went yeah. back, but the real ALP is always pretty conservative. But uh, yeah. I think it, it is getting worse and worse because they keep taking, and as Labor keeps going further to the right to yep. what it believes, yeah. um, you know, populist win the pop, yeah. win populist, yeah. uh, then it becomes worse and worse. So it is getting worse. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right, including this one. A, and this is all about uh, people being fined for various things. A Melbourne dentist has been slapped with a fine after he underpaid a staff member tens of thousands of dollars. Now, he underpaid him, in fact, $30,000. Wow. Um, it was a Chinese national in his early 20s working as a dental technician. It's a Collins Street clinic, so, you know, it's, it's mm. a high-market one. Mm. He was sponsored by the clinic on a skilled worker visa which I thought was interesting because I'm sure there's no shortage of dental technicians around Australia. Right. But anyway, yeah. that, that's another point. Mm. And paid a flat rate of $15 an hour over the course of his employment. I wow. Mean, how remarkable. Wow. And the bloke had been ordered to back back pain but hadn't, so he was brought up to court again for breaching that, that, that notice. Wow. Um, that's audacious. But the doctor, Dr. Masters, Dr. Um, Ari Masters, said the underpayment was not significant, um, even the judge said he thought that was a pretty extraordinary statement. Um, he was ordered to pay pay the worker back thirty two grand or nearly thirty three grand, but the fine for all that over the years five thousand three hundred and fifty five dollars. That's nothing. It's not really a disincentive, nothing. is it? Couple of couple of patients. Yeah. Um, maybe one patient, in fact. Yeah. Uh, ditto. Um, ditto. A businessman who leased a Melbourne property to dump about 950 cubic metres of industrial waste. And he was renting, this bloke called Ibrahim Ali Ibrahim of Mernda, was renting skip bins to builders and landscapers and then emptying the contents on a vacant lot at Carayo, where he also allowed customers to dump truckloads more waste. The wow. stockpiles measured 27 metres wide and up to 2 metres high in parts. Geelong Magistrates Court heard. Victoria's environmental watchdog ordered Ibrahim remove the waste and clean the site by June 30, 2017, but he failed to meet the deadline yeah. and the matter progressed to court, etc. And he was fined, I mean, um, fined $10,000, which again is 
to me nothing for that damage and all the clean-up that's involved and everything else. And that's so, so um, bold to just rent some land and dump rubbish That's right. There. Does the punishment fit the crime? Yeah. And this one, and this is a really serious one, uh, a bloke, the court heard, I'll go into the story here, the court heard the worker fell after the site's foreman directed him to throw items from a carport roof into a vehicle parked near the home. Now, this was a building worker, um, and he, he, in doing that, he crashed through a skylight and he suffered life-changing injuries, including head trauma, a mm. spinal fracture, and post-traumatic amnesia. He oh. fell two and a half metres through the skylight. Um, and a woman, the woman from um, WorkSafe Victoria said, sadly, this worker has suffered life-changing injuries because safety controls were not properly followed. Mm. Now, this employer was fined, uh, it's called SimCat Enterprises for Private Limited, was fined $75,000 for destroying a bloke's life. Um, I would have thought, and probably, I mean, I'm not saying this company will do it, but most of these companies then just disappear overnight and mm. re-emerge um, and, um, so, um, yeah. and, and never get round to paying anyway. It's very sad. Yeah. So there you are. thought we'd leave it at that. We'll, we'll go to Dave Sweeney very shortly and um, yeah. have a yarn about something sensible. It's been a pretty cheery little chat, that hasn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cheer me up no end. So people will be heading, <laughs> yeah. heading to the cot and pulling the blankets up. They'll be going out to the Crown Casino to down their sorrows and <laughs> the pokies. <laughs> Driving on night You could be a shadow Beneath the street light behind my home, driving on night. I sure miss you. Past the motel, looking at the pines, driving on night.
You're listening to City Limits, and uh, that was the Breeders playing Driving on Nine, a little driving song for everyone. It's just because we love cars and highways here. And we've got Dave Sweeney um, from the Australian Conservation Foundation, their anti-nuclear campaigner. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Good morning, Meg. Dave, um, I got you on today, you're only on fairly recently, but since then, of course, the government's announced a uh, standing committee on the environment and energy investigation into uh, nuclear as a source of energy for Australia, uh, following a number of calls over recent times. We did talk about these last time, but uh, uh, is this a positive step? It's a Groundhog Day step, Kevin. It's really, you know... I know it was a pretty probing question, Dave, but anyway, do your best. It was a probing question. It's sort of like the World Cup or the Olympics without the, uh, without the interest or the, or the positives. Um, every now and again, someone decides to have an inquiry into nuclear power in Australia. Um, this is the latest one. Is it a positive step? No because we shouldn't be having the discussion. We should be moving on to the real energy challenges and opportunities. Is it as bad as it could be? No. It's a reasonable committee um, and it's a pretty quick turnaround time and um, it's not being chaired by Barnaby Joyce, um, you know. (laughs) So there's a hope that there'll be some, some evidence and some attention that looks at cost, prerequisites, social licence, bipartisan support, looks at safety, looks at alternatives. And if you have a half-credible, if you have a half-independent or disinterested assessment of the nuclear sector in Australia, it would be a little bit like saying you got through your dangerous teenage years and let's start smoking at 31. (laughs) It's a really (laughs) stupid idea. Who's advising the committee? Where are they getting the information from? Do you know? It's a pretty broad... um, Well, the the, um, direction, Meg, it's come from... uh, uh, Angus Wilson, the Minister, has said to the committee, you will do this. I want you to advise on prerequisites and what's required, what would be needed I know he's in non, I know he's nondescript, but his name's Angus Taylor, by the way, not Wilson. <laughs> oh, heavens above. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe, can't, can't believe you forgot his name. <laughs> oh, there you go. The therapy is working. There you go. So that's one transcript that'll land on a desk in camera. My apologies, Minister. Um, yes. And, uh, Actually, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but on, on my satire piece, a couple of times a week. I call him Angus Failure, by the way, but that's beside the point. Oh, there you go. Boom, boom. Um, The Minister, uh, um, Angus, has, um, uh, you know, referred this to committee. They've said they're they're taking public submissions till the middle of September. They're making um, a report by Christmas. So Mm. it's all quite quick. Mm. Look, the downside of this is that it is clearly in response to a growing push from the Mineral Council of Australia, from the Queensland Nationals and the Nationals in general, um, from a sort of rump of the hard right in the political spectrum and also from a a bunch of true believers, some of whom are genuinely motivated by a fear. They've looked down the barrel of the reality of climate change and Mm. said we need to do something, whatever it is, something, Mm. and others are either mischievous or, uh, you know, have a material benefit. Um, Mm. uh, But what our concern is from the Australian Conservation Foundation is not... We've got no concern with a debate or an issue or let's test nuclear because it doesn't stack up. Mm. What we are concerned about, and we've seen it already, there has been, from people involved in pushing this, um, there has been already, you know, false claims. There's these claims like Australia is the only OECD nation that doesn't use nuclear power. Well, that's patently, demonstrably untrue. Mm. 
And we're concerned that sometimes untrue narratives, as we all know, spoken with confidence by people in positions of power, get picked up by a media that is either complacent or under capacity or is full of people that are just racing to try and fill 15 platforms of copy. Mm. Um, and then it becomes the story that people think, oh, well, we're the only one in the OECD that doesn't use nukes. And so we are concerned about misinformation and that whole nukes spruik sort of stuff. Mm. But we're also concerned that it's actually a dangerous distraction. You know, this whole debate, as they say, a, a dangerous distraction from meeting the real energy challenges and grasping and, and, and embracing the real energy opportunities. Yeah. Oh, no. oh so yeah. you, a- ACF would be doing a submission then, I suppose? Like when, when you say public submissions, do you have a, a, an idea about who's going to be putting things in there? Yeah, like, yeah. absolutely. ACF will be getting it. Um, getting in there, Friends of the Earth will be getting in there, like a whole range of civil society groups will be putting in, as will a whole range of trade unions, like the ETU, Electrical Trade Union, very involved in this issue, very strong position, recently reaffirmed at their national uh, conference um, against nuclear power. Um, so there'll be public health groups, medical groups, environment groups, Aboriginal groups, trade unions, there'll be faith groups. There will hopefully be a range of the renewable Mm. organisation and advocacy groups to just say, why are we having this discussion? We are the answer, you know, renewable, not radioactive, that's the energy future. So there'll be certainly that. On the other side of the ledger, though, Meg, there'll be the Mineral Council of Australia. Mm. Oddly enough, they're big players who work in the uranium space, Rio Tinto and BHP, have no interest in nuclear power mm. and have no interest in pushing or promoting this. They just want to rip and ship and they're not doing much of that because the market's so poor. But there is a group of like IPA-style, you know, Institute of Public Affairs-style ideologues who sit in the Mineral Council Secretariat in Canberra. Mm. Helen Coonan, former communications minister, and a whole range of of other sort of mining apparatchiks that wouldn't really know one end of the shovel from the other, mm. um, who are driving this sort of stuff, very, very aggressively pushing this sort of stuff. There'll be a group of sort of uh, pro-nuclear technocrats. There'll be people from ANSTO, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. There'll be some people that they shake out of physics units at a couple of the universities. Um, but, you know, it, it'll be, you could sort of list who will say, who will present, who will be there and what they'll say. I think what we want to see, though, is, like, the real questions of, like, cost, social licence, waste. Mm, mm. Um, and the big question here is, is the one of, like, if the only options we had going forward into the 21st century for keeping the lights on, the beer cold, the shower hot, mm. if the only options were coal or nuclear... This would be a debate. Mm. We can't keep burning coal, so mm. maybe there would be a debate, do we need to go nuclear? But it's not. Mm. So it's sort of like having a debate mm. about two items when there's 700 to choose from and having this, you know, two people shouting in the supermarket aisle when there's 698 other alternatives, mm. which are cheaper, cleaner, more popular and deployable now. Mm. So, you know, let's get on with the job of repowering our economy and the region with renewable energy. Yeah, and on that point, in fact, um, it was even Industry Super Australia, as we talked about last time, came out and said nuclear should be on the table. And the ETU came out and attacked them over that. But even on this inquiry, the industry super says it won't be involved because such a narrow inquiry into a singular technology falls outside the scope of our work and we won't be participating. So even they say that it's, it's ridiculous just to look at one source. Well, it's interesting that, that because 
The, um, I mentioned before about people who had been pushing uh, this renewed nuclear power push and one of them was one of the people who wrote... There was only a couple of people who wrote a discussion paper for Australian Super and then launched it like Unions Revisit Nuclear Power. Mm. And one of the people that was involved in that paper was one of those that was going around and being commented quite widely and quoted quite widely as saying that Australia is, one of the, is the only OECD nation that doesn't have nuclear power. So I think... What we're seeing maybe with that, I'd like to think, is that there has been... I know some unions, including obviously the ETU, they've been driving a response, but other unions have been very unhappy to think of workers' money being talked about as going into the public subsidy for an industry that's profoundly underperforming, mm. that really has disproportionate and adverse impact on Aboriginal communities and culture, mm. and that threatens and risks workers. Um, so hopefully... Um, uh, you know, Industry Super has, has had a bit of a sense and a temperature test, which has said that people really don't want this. And mm. that applies across the board too, wider, Kevin, in the sense of, you know, one of the things when people talk, every other committee, the South Australian Royal Commission, Ziggy Switkowski's early committee, a House of Reps uh, committee into uranium and nuclear industry, there's been a series of them. And all of them have spoken about the essential need for bipartisan political support and for broad community support. Now, those things simply do not exist in relation to nuclear power. Labor Party at its national conference in December in Adelaide last year reaffirmed unequivocal opposition to domestic nuclear power. The Greens obviously strongly, absolutely opposed a bunch of the crossbenchers too. There is no bipartisan political support, and there won't be, and there's no broad community support. But if you jump on a bike or jump on public transport, you know, we're not talking cars on city limits, but jump on a bike mm. or public transport or have a stroll, and you can see Australians voting with their roofs about mm. renewables. Mm. There's broad support for that. And renewables are growing. They're the fastest uh, energy sector in the world and the fastest growth sector in Australia and the cheapest form of new electricity generation by far. And it's growing despite government that is trying mm. to constrain and rip it down and is giving mixed signals and is providing market uncertainty and is certainly not doing policy settings that help. But despite that, it's growing. So we're saying, look, can we move on and actually accept that we need to transition out of coal? That will bring, that will bring significant impacts and significant structural relocation and work that needs to be done with unions, with affected communities. That's a big, mature, adult person job and discussion. Let's move on with that and let's just bolt shut this stupid idea that um, nuclear power has a role. It doesn't. It, where it's established already, Kevin and Meg, countries are turning off. Germany, mm. California, a host of countries. That's the fifth and sixth largest industrial economies in the world, switching off nukes. They're exiting nuclear power. It has fallen from 20-plus percent of the world market share of electricity at the start of this century to 10% now. It's on its way down. It's still significant, mm. but it's on its way down. It's an ageing boxer. And what we need to do is transition and embrace the future, which is renewables. And that's where the jobs are. We can retool Australian manufacturing, what's left of it. We can re grow regional mm. jobs. We have skills here, smarts here, technology and tools here, where we could be move from being a rip-and-ship transporter and facilitator of dirty energy with coal and uranium to being actually smart, skills-based, growing tools, technology and ideas 
to lead the world and be an enabler in clean energy. It's a very nice scenario. It kicks all the boxes for employment, for environment, for inclusion and for low risk. And we can do it now. So that's the case that we'll be presenting. We're looking at this. If we have to have a debate on nuclear power, then let's have it. Knock nuclear power on the head Mm. and actually get a commitment or grow a, a groundswell of support for actually transitioning our economy the way we know we need to. Yeah. As a by the by, a perfect meteorological timing last weekend I caught the train to Ballarat to have lunch on Saturday um, and um, to the coldest spot in Victoria um, but just we noticed on the way up those, those new housing estates that are running rampant in the those suburbs um, all every single one of them had a new had a, a solar panel on there I think it's to do with planning laws anyway but nonetheless they all had solar panels on their roofs, which I found interesting. But, um, but just the, the question of nuclear waste, which we haven't quite got onto yet, but um, has that been solved? Because last week in consecutive days, ABC Breakfast Show interviewed the Labor spokesperson and then Ziggy himself the next day. And in both interviews, there was not one mention of nuclear waste. So apparently it's no problem, Dave. Oh, that's, that's extraordinary. It remains the Achilles heel. There's, there's some things that have changed in the nuclear debate. Some things have changed, particularly the growth acceptability and, and credibility of alternatives. Mm. But there's some things that just fundamentally have not changed because they're essentially unchanging. And the key of that is, is nuclear waste. The other key of that is, is insecurity, either insecurity through reactor operation or insecurity through the fueling or the facilitating of dual-use technology and the spread of potential spread of nuclear weapons and arms. So insecurity, uncertainty, they're themes for the last 50 years of the nuclear industry, but so too is waste. There is no clear pathway forward for any nation on earth, really, with the exception of Finland, which is developing at high cost and only for itself a deep geological disposal in a you know in a pretty clinical manner, but it's expensive it's been time consuming, and the world is watching to see how it goes everywhere else, including in countries that are significant industrial countries with a lot of technical capacity and I'm putting to that the states Germany and Japan. Radioactive waste management is either a complete dog's breakfast or it's a day-by-day hayband and hope sort of um, kick-the-can-down-the-road management process, sort of store and decay. And so the fundamentals of this is that you, you mine uranium, you process it, you manufacture it into a fuel rod, you put the fuel rod into the reactor and you get three years, a 1,000 days thereabouts, of reliable credible electricity generation. The thing works. There's no question it works. So you get three years of cold beers and hot showers and then it no longer is certain. It no longer operates in a stable fashion. You pull it out and now it's high-level radioactive waste and you get 100,000 years of the need to manage that and isolate that from people in the environment. It's carcinogenic, mutagenic, changes genes, causes cancer, moves in water, it's awful stuff, and you've now woken it up and it's around for 100,000 years. It's a very poor Mm. rate of return. Three years of electricity, 100,000 years of risk. Mm. So um, no one 
has worked out a way. There's been all sorts of efforts to reburn that in other new generation reactors, to transmute it into an inert substance in some sort of alchemy, to bury it, to containerize it, to put it in steel, to put it in steel mixed with copper, mixed with lead. There has been enormous volumes of work and effort and really fine minds applying to the issue and it remains a massive management problem. Mm. So for people to say nuclear power is clean is just gag worthy. Mm. Nuclear power is lower carbon than fossil fuel. No question, granted, given. It is not clean. It has an intergenerational waste, a legacy waste burden that is greater than any other energy source. Mm. It is a dirty form of producing electricity and there are other cleaner and cheaper and safer forms of doing the same. So why would you pursue a dirty, discredited, dangerous one? Yeah, and there's, you know, even the, even the advocates are saying anything between 15 and 25 years before it would be ready anyway, even if you started building now. Even if you started building now in the yeah. absence of approvals, licensing regimes, insurance, mm. a skilled workforce, nuclear engineers, etc., etc., etc. So it takes you 25 years. Everywhere these places are being built, it's only in state economies or where there's massive direct public subsidy. As in, in England, where they're building one at Hinkley, highly contested, highly dodgy, the way they're building it is massive direct subsidy to the corporation and a promise to lock in high, mega-elevated power prices to the consumer for the next three decades. That's not the free market. Mm. That's screwing the market, rorting the market and putting a burden onto the future so that you can put some money in your mate's pockets today. Um, yeah, these, it, it is not quick. That's absolutely absolutely spot on the money there Kevin it is not quick everywhere they are being built they're over budget and over time they take years to deploy the other thing about them I suppose is that the ones that exist are centralized heavy slow all they do is churn out power they're not responsive to peak demand they're not flexible they're not easily integrated into or deployed into a new modern generation grid all those sort of problems exist so the industry is now saying, well, don't worry about them because we've got these new ones, small modular reactors. You go down the Bunnings, you chuck it in the back of the truck, you drop it off the end of the footy club and there, that powers everything. It's extraordinarily sort of cavalier how they're talking about these things. But the thing is, these things don't exist. None of them are in commercial operation. People are saying that they're decades away and would cost hundreds of billions to move to commercial rate. That's the Carnegie Institute in the States assessing that, not Friends of the Earth or ACF. Um, and so... The, the ones that exist are discredited and the ones that sound fantastic don't exist. Now, we have real energy problems. We have real energy problems now. The prices are high. The carbon is high. Mm. Nuclear isn't the answer. Renewables is the answer. Like, can we please? Yeah, it must well, we be. Can. Yeah, <laughs> it must be so frustrating. I mean, just uh, obviously just from a punter's point of view, like to see all of the potential in the technology and the skills and the uh, research that we could be putting to use in Australia to make us a smart energy country and to see this conversation on the table instead is just must be incredibly frustrating for you in your position as well, Dave. It is, Neil. I hope it doesn't come across as, as like, you know, here's this guy that's just about to run into the wall for the 15th time this morning. I'm not. There's a bit of life in me yet with this, but it is, it is frustrating. It is frustrating. Yeah. It is like, well, can we please tease out why you want to do this? Yeah. Is it for, is it for electricity? 
do you want to make electricity more plentiful and cheaper and mm. low carbon? Yes, I do. Tick all boxes, says the nodding politician. Yeah. Well, this one will not do it, and these 17 will. Mm. So why are we wasting any time? So it all gets caught up in all sorts of other things like weird uh, sort of ideological mm. strands, personal strands of, you know, um, uh, stuff about a uh, hope maybe one day we better keep our eye on the Indonesians and keep our eye on what happens if America leaves and we're left facing China and we haven't got anything, maybe we need to keep just yeah. their window open for a nuclear option. Like you know, weapon, all like sorts weapons, of drivers. nuclear weapons? Absolutely. Yeah. Some people, mm. you know, we've seen Hugh White come out and say maybe we need to develop nuclear weapons. Yeah. Everyone knows that there is a direct link between nuclear technologies. They're Siamese twins, really. Mm. Um, you know, the peaceful atom was born out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombing, the Manhattan mm. Program. Mm. And and if if there wasn't a link, and before, you know, some people, you say that and people go, oh, you know, you're, you're chicken little or you're scaremongering. Mm. But the thing basically is this, Meg, if there wasn't a link between civilian and military applications of nuclear technology, why would we give a rats? Why yeah. would the world give a rats about mm. Iran enriching uranium? Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's like an, it is there's it's a, just there. Yeah, there's a, that increasing kind of way that it seems like Australia politically is moving towards like that weapons area of of having an income from military sort of uh, industry? Does that it seems deeply, to be a thing? Deeply yeah. disturbing. I don't think it's directly linked, but yeah. I think it's part of a deeply disturbing sort of erosion of yeah. our sense of who we are and what, mm. what is possible. You know, it was, it was farm, then it was quarry. It was always stolen for the mm. last 250 years. Then mm. it was farm, then it was mine, then it was quarry, yeah. and now we're turning into arms depots. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like the former Prime Minister Turnbull proudly said that I want to see Australia in the top 10 of the world's arms exporters. Like, I felt sick mm. as an Australian, as a person travelling the world right. with a kangaroo and an emu on a piece of paper. The merchants of death. I felt ashamed. Mm. Merchants of death. Oh, look, I wanted to take you to this. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but this, this, is what we just, this is directly from what you've just been saying. People like Lockheed Martin and the nuclear industry generally, the biggest, they're the biggest arms manufacturer in the world, I think, um, they're now heavily involved with our universities. They're up at Melbourne. They're sponsoring all sorts of things, including post-grad students. This is a pretty dangerous development as well, isn't it? It's a, it's a deeply dangerous development, Kevin. It's a, it's a really perverse um, erosion of, uh, you know, uh, what, what's the role of an academic institution. Like I might say I'm very old because this has been happening for a long time, but it's really sharp and really clear when you see it in industries that are based around causing, not trying to alleviate human suffering, but actually causing and furthering it. Um, and the so-called defence industries and the way that they are moving in. Lockheed Martin at Melbourne Uni, there's that student and, and staff campaign, Lockout Lockheed. You know, their promotion of things like the so-called, you know, Avalon Air Show, which is a war Games Fest, uh, British uh, Aerospace having a theatrette and others having naming rights at the new war memorial. Like, mm. let's have a war memorial in order to plant the seed, not of memory, reflection, honour and a commitment not to, mm. but to plant the seed of these are the corporations that are going to gain and profit and the shareholder value from the next one. Dave, All these things cut, are deeply so, concerned. We're going to have to cut it there, though. I said we only had a couple of minutes left, but look, it's a subject we can come back to again. Cause we... Gee, it's, a tough <laughs> one to, it's a tough one to throw in with 90 seconds ago. <laughs> 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 you passed the you know, test. You're saying, you're saying nuclear and you're saying arms and you're saying future of the nation. <laughs> oh, it's only the future of the planet. Don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> You've got 10 seconds. Okay, Dave, thanks a lot.
Thanks um, for the opportunity. Great okay. to chat. Thanks, mate. Good. Thank you. Um, Dave Sweeney there from Australian Conservation Foundation. I think we get the impression he's not actually in favour of this uh, nuclear solution. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I think that's... I mean, it's always so interesting talking to Dave. There's really a lot of information there and a lot of sensible... Right. Sounds very sensible to me. Next week's housing, yeah. um, and hopefully we'll have a chat to... Uh, and in fact, in housing next week, hopefully we'll talk to someone about this... Uh, Private the private company or a soccer club actually taking over Footscray Park yeah. and there's been less of local objection to that. We should deal with that next week. That'll be good.